I had a conversation with the pastors before we started this sermon series, so about six or seven weeks ago. As we walked through kind of what we think we would talk about in this series, uh, I had told them that I, I anticipated that we'd probably have to do an Ecclesia part one and part two. What I mean by that is that as, as a church, we like, as our bread and butter, just going through books of the Bible. But occasionally we'll pause for a topical sermon series like this that we think would be genuinely helpful for those who are present. But we don't like to do that for so long that we don't get to dive back into the Word. And so uh, as we kind of put together the list and the order of things we were going to walk through, uh, this or next week was supposed to be our stopping point, depending on a little bit of spillover. And uh, if, if everything worked out the way I had originally scheduled it out, today I was scheduled to preach on baptism, communion, the preaching of God's word, worship, and spiritual gifts and prayer in the church. And to that I say, ha! So we are almost certainly going to have to revisit Ecclesia um, again, maybe sometime in the fall. We'll, we'll take a pause from our study through Hebrews that I'm greatly looking forward to. Well, this is the introduction to our Ecclesia Sermon Series, or what I put up in our introduction, trying to help define what a local church is. I'm going to throw the slide up that we've been referring back to multiple times. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gathers in Christ's name around worship, prayer, the ordinances, and the preaching of God's word and organize life together as the family of God. We have multiple times as a church revisited a very important time in Christian history, a time that we refer to as the time of the Reformation, the early 1500s. We've done a couple different sermon series on this over the course of the last handful of years. And the reason we've done that is because there were some things articulated and defined during the early 1500s, during the time of the Reformation, that we think are so critical that they actually need to be clarified all over again and again and again. It was a period of history in which the Christian faith had reached a tipping point, a breaking point, in which in order to stay faithful to the Bible, Many people could no longer remain in a singular religion, singular religious system, but they had to break off, and this became the Protestant Reformation. It was when the Roman Catholic Church, the dominant faith persuasion in the Western world at the time, began doing certain things that the rest of the Christians said, we we, we can't stay on board. So much, in fact, that they broke off, they protested, some of those doctrines and became what we now look at as Protestant churches, the many Protestant denominations in our world. One of the things that was a huge divide between the Protestant churches and the Roman Catholic churches at that time were the ordinances. The Catholic churches would actually refer to them as the sacraments. They're referring to the same basic kinds of things, but we tend to use a little different wording today in order to separate ourselves in view from what the Catholics thought the sacraments were. The Roman Catholic Church actually held to seven sacraments, baptism, communion, confirmation, confession, marriage, anointing of the sick, and holy orders. But the Reformers, those in the Protestant persuasion, held very distinctly that there are only two ordinances in the church. 
In fact, they held that there are two essential marks of a Christian church, right preaching of the word of God and right administration of the two ordinances, the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Things ordered, ordained by, commissioned by Jesus that we would do. Not just by tradition, not just by philosophy and logic, but by Jesus' clear teaching, we ought to administer baptism and the Lord's Supper. Today, we'll talk a bit about baptism. Now, I'm going to start talking about this by saying this to you. At the Mission Church, we believe that every Christian, every believer in Jesus Christ should be baptized. We want you to get baptized. But I also want you to understand what that means and what baptism entails. The verse we're going to begin with as kind of our launch pad for this this morning is in Matthew chapter 28, forgive the typo, 28, verses 18 through 20. The passage that is known as the Great Commission in the book of Matthew, the closing few verses of that book. I'm going to read this, pray, and then we'll dive into what I believe this means for us. Put it up on the screen for those of you who might not have it in front of you. And Jesus came and said to them, his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, this morning I have a mighty task of trying to help this congregation hear and understand what baptism is. Lord, we know that it is a clear command of Scripture, but it is easy for us to run astray on what the whole counsel of your word teaches us about this. Additionally, Lord, I'm well aware that there are many different persuasions in Protestant churches, even in churches that we would acknowledge as God-honoring gospel-preaching, Christ-exalting churches that have differing views on baptism. I pray you'd help me to, to be generous, charitable towards brothers and sisters in Christ who don't agree with us on this, to be clear for the sake of those in our hearing, to, to know what it is that the, the mission church and, and our historical tradition has held to, and we believe that the Bible teaches about baptism. And Father, most clearly, I believe that you are holy, and I desire to not trample on your holy name as I preach from your word in an effort to be helpful to those who are hearing. So help me to do that, Lord. Help me to be true, clear, and helpful for all those who will hear this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Baptism is a central component of the Christian faith. It is a central part of even the Great Commission. Jesus, in his commissioning of his disciples to go and make disciples, clearly puts in here to baptize these new disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So Christians should not only be a baptized people, but a baptizing people. We should be those who are, are and have been baptized and who go out into the world and to baptize the nations. So what is baptism? The New Testament gives us many pictures of it, explains how it works out in many different places. It gives instruction on how the church ought to deal with and think about baptism. But simply put, baptism is an outward sign of an inward faith. It is an outward sign of an inward faith. It is a symbol of something greater. 
few weeks ago when we were talking about membership, I made the case that membership is a symbol, an outward visible symbol of our inward faith, or the fact that we are already members of the invisible church. We do something outward to show that we are members of a local church. Communion, as we're going to talk about next week, the Lord's Supper, is an outward symbol of something that's already inwardly true. It's an outward acknowledgement that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed for us. Being a symbol, then, we do not believe that baptism saves anyone. That it is, a not, it is not an essential prerequisite for salvation. Now, there are many verses in the Bible that upon first reading do make it seem as though baptism could be required for salvation. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Peter will say it in Acts chapter 2. There's many places that make it sound that way to us. But baptism, being both commanded and expected of all believers, should be expected to be part of the command that comes with what it means to be a believer. Oftentimes I've used the example of a wedding ring. You, can, you could say to somebody in regards to wedding, hey, put a ring on that girl's finger and you mean get married to her. It's so intricately tied, the symbol of marriage is so intricately tied to marriage itself that when we say that to somebody, people know what we mean. I've dealt with many of these verses in the past sermons. I'll let you refer back to some of those. Today I'm going to focus more on just, just one place specifically. I think the New Testament makes it crystal clear that a person is not saved by baptism. And that place is in Acts chapter 10. This is a time in which Peter, the apostle, is told by an angel to go and visit the house of Cornelius, a Gentile. And he's to preach the gospel to this Gentile household, and he does that. He shows up, he preaches the gospel amongst these Gentiles, and this is the conclusion of that sermon. I'll pick it up in Acts 10, verses 43. To him, to Jesus, he's saying to Cornelius' household, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Right here, Peter already makes it very clear that the sole prerequisite of forgiveness of sins is believing in Jesus. The next verse continues on. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for the record. That's, that's kind of the primary point of what's taking place in Acts 10. They thought you had to be a Jew to be saved. But these non-Jews are getting saved. The Holy Spirit came on them just like on them at Pentecost. They're like, oh my goodness. What are we to do with these Gentiles now? The Holy Spirit is on these guys because they've heard the word and they've believed. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. That's the same stuff that was happening with all the believers, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem at Pentecost. Several chapters earlier. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Our sign, our guarantee of the inheritance in us, our sign of salvation is the Holy Spirit. Everyone who has the Spirit has eternal life. And that's exactly what we see. They have the Holy Spirit on them. They're believers. How can we deny baptizing these people who are saved just like we are saved? And not only this 
particular passage, which I think is a helpful one. If you're talking with somebody who thinks that baptism is a necessary prerequisite for eternal life, take a look at this passage. But also, the whole New Testament testifies that we are saved by grace through faith and not through outward works, not through outward signs. John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, not falsely, falsely, truly, truly, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Hear, believe, have eternal life. Acts 16, verses 30 through 31. Sirs, what must I do to be saved, is the cry of the Philippian jailer. And they said to him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Time would fail us for me to walk through all the verses in the New Testament that talk explicitly about the prerequisite for heaven being solely belief in Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God not of works, so that no man can boast. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus was once asked, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And John 6.29 replies, He said to him, This is the work of God, to believe in him whom he has sent. Romans 4.5 tells us that whoever stops working but believes in him who is justified, who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness. The Holy Spirit does not hover over the person who's about to enter the water, waiting for him or her to perform a physical work before he can then save and regenerate the heart. In fact, it's the Holy Spirit who's the one who convicted the heart and drove the new Christian into the water in the first place. It is not the symbol that saves, but the reality. Baptism then symbolizes at least three things in the life of a believer. Baptism as a symbol of our already existing faith, new life in Christ. Baptism symbolizes at least three things in the life of a believer. And this is what I'm going to share with you for most of this morning. First, baptism illustrates death and new life. It illustrates death and new life. Specifically, death burial, resurrection to new life is what it symbolizes. Let me show you some places in the scripture. Romans 6, 3-4 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism illustrates that. Baptism is an illustration of our death from previous self. Buried in the waters of baptism like Jesus was buried in the ground and then resurrected to new life. That's what it symbolizes primarily. This is the primary illustration of baptism in the New Testament. Colossians 2, 11 through 12. In him, Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So baptism illustrates our identification with Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. Even when not referring to baptism as an ordinance, in the New Testament, when that word baptizo is used to refer to something, 
it is oftentimes used to signify physical destruction. So look, look at this. Mark 10, 38. Jesus is, is being uh, approached by a couple of disciples who are saying, hey, let us sit at your right and left hand in the kingdom. And Jesus says this. He says to them, do you not know what you are asking? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Well, these guys had already been baptized. He's not talking about that. He's talking about something more significant. He'll, he'll repeat this idea in Luke 12, 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with, Jesus says. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. What was Jesus sent to accomplish? Death on the cross. I have a baptism. I have have a destruction of the body. A physical destruction to endure. He's saying to to these brothers, you're not going to have to endure that like I'm going to. For the record, they are going to have to die for him. They are going to have to suffer for him. 1 Peter 3.21, really, really fascinating passage regarding baptism. But Peter makes a, a correlation in this passage between Noah, the guy with the ark and all the animals in the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, who survived the global flood. Peter brings up Noah and, and the eight people total in that ark and all the animals that survived through the great deluge that destroyed the world. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, that baptism of the world, that water deluging, saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, First note here, Peter makes it clear he's concerned that somebody might think he means you're saved by the water. And he makes it clear, it saves you not, 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 as, not by the water. That's not what does it. It's not the removal of dirt from the body. It's not the physical activity that does anything. But as an appeal to God for a good conscience. That's what makes baptism effective. That's why it's there for us. But back to the point I was driving at here. Baptism is corresponding to the flood. The deluge of the world in physical destruction. So Jesus says that baptism is like a destruction of the body. Peter says baptism is like a destruction of the world. There's another place in 1 Corinthians that talks about the, the Jews who came out of the Exodus, the Hebrew peoples, and they made it through the waters while all of Pharaoh's army died in the waters. They came through the physical destruction and were not destroyed by it. Baptism oftentimes points to this idea. People were rescued from the waters of destruction. As Christians, we have spiritually died to self, to sin. We passed through the destruction of our earthly life. This is why Paul can say that I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. We are dead to our former selves. We are now newly alive in Christ. In this new life, We are no longer seen as sinners before God, but as new creations. The primary illustration of baptism in the New Testament is death, burial, and new life. Additionally, baptism symbolizes inclusion into the body of Christ. It symbolizes becoming part of the church. Look what it says in Galatians 3, 27 through 28. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
baptism symbolizes our oneness with all the universal body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13, Paul continues the same idea. For just as the body is one and as many members, there's lots of parts of a physical body, but, but it's one body. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. He's making the same basic point in both of these passages, the Galatian passage and the Corinthians. Regardless of where you came from, your background, all the practicalities of your life, when you are baptized into the body of Christ, you become one with the body. This is a symbol of our union with all other Christians around us. Note on this. The primary purpose of baptism, then, is not evangelistic. Quick note, because this is becoming a, a more common thing in maybe the last 30 to 50 years where baptism is seen as an evangelistic outreach. This is a way to express to the world that they should become believers. Now, for the record, I think it's a great idea to invite non-believers to a baptism to experience what's taking place and watch this and hear the testimonies. I think it's wonderful for non-believers to be present for baptisms, but that's not what it is designed for. Not primarily. It is not for evangelism, but it is a sign of corporate union with the body of Christ. It is a symbol of, I, I died, I died in faith, and I'm now brought back, resurrected in Christ. I'm a new creation now. That's what they symbolize. For much of church history, it should not be surprising them that baptism the actual getting into water, has been a sign of membership in a local church. That when a person would become a believer and then get in the water and come out, that all the, local, all the believers around them would go, you're one of us now. We're, those one another's that are commanded in the Bible, we're going to do that with you. You're, you're part of us now. I think it's a wonderful thing for baptism to be seen as a sign of membership, a covenant community with believers. As I previously stated, I do believe that people can be saved without having yet been baptized. This is the orthodox view of baptism. But I do not believe that we at the Mission Church could rightly be called a church if there was no baptism amongst us. In other words, if we were to say, we're never going to baptize anyone, and the members of this church don't have to be baptized at all, for us to reject that would not be us acknowledging, clinging to, doing in thought and mind, deed, what these passages are telling us. We're becoming one body. We're, we're displaying the fact that we are one body with one another by doing that. Now, I will say that there is at least one story in the book of Acts, depending on how your mind works. My mind works like this. When you hear a statement like that, baptism symbolizes inclusion into the body of Christ, it's oftentimes seen as a, as, a, as a sign of membership in a local church. Your mind goes, chick, 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 chick. what about Acts 8? For those of you who didn't do that in your mind, Acts 8 is, is where Philip, the evangelist, talks to an Ethiopian eunuch. He's coming into town. He's coming into Jerusalem. He's, he's going to be heading back down to Ethiopia. He works for Candace, the queen down there, treasurer. And Philip explains the book of Isaiah that that this, this eunuch is, is reading, and he, he hears about Jesus. He, he gets saved. He cries out in saving faith, and they see water, and he goes, why, why shouldn't I be baptized right now? And they baptize him, and then boom, the guy's gone. 
quite literally, Philip disappears. And the Ethiopian eunuch presumably just heads right back down to Ethiopia, completely separate from any church, local church body. Okay? So we might say, wait, wait, wait a second, wait a second. How can we say that this is inclusion into the body of Christ, that it should be something that's even seen in a local sense in that way, if we have a story for how it didn't happen like that? Well, quite honestly, I think that this story seems to be clearly a supernatural exception to the norm. And what I mean by that is that it's, it's surrounded by the supernatural. That at the moment that it's about to happen, Philip is literally visited by the angel of the Lord to say, go talk to that guy. When he gets close to him, the Holy Spirit whispers to him, go talk to that guy. After he does it, literally he disappears. Some people see that there's also potentially another miracle taking place in that story because it says specifically it was a desert place and yet they came upon a giant body of water in which he could actually get baptized. It says he went down and then came back up. I think it's very possible. Nevertheless, our hopes and our presumptions here, and actually his history would bear out that this Ethiopian eunuch didn't separate and go live on an island somewhere to be his own believer in his own special local congregation of one. Became a missionary, preaching and teaching down in Ethiopia in which the gospel would continue to spread. Now, for the record, I, I, I do think that we might expect there could be exceptions to the way that we typically do things today. I think there could be exceptions to that. We're slow to build dogma where we don't have clear passages. Nevertheless, even with verses like this one, that passage in Acts 8, it does seem clear that baptism is to serve as a symbol of inclusion into the body of Christ and seen and observed in a local congregation. Third symbol. Baptism symbolizes the washing away of sins. It's an additional use of baptism. It, it serves to symbolize the washing away of sins. We see this in Acts 22, verse 16. Paul is retelling the story of how he got saved, and he shows up to Ananias. Ananias is a believer who's visited by God in a dream and said, listen, this Paul that was persecuting the church, he's going to be a believer. I'm going to use him. He's going to suffer for the gospel. Baptize this guy. And Ananias, he's, this is what, what uh, is being said by Ananias as Paul is retelling it. And now, why do you wait, Paul? Rise up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name, Jesus' name. We see this picture of the sins being washed away. If you've ever been a part of the Christian baptism, it's probably not surprising for you to have heard that language being used. This is kind of a symbol of washing away of sins, and we do. We do have a verse that points us to this. It's, it's another place in which we see that washing sense, the forgiveness of sins being displayed in that public act. Now, while we may not have explicit instructions on some of the details of baptism, these biblical examples or why we baptize the way that we do. So briefly, on the, the nuts and the bolts of baptism, my hope is that this is well-serving to you. You need to know what you believe about baptism and why, and you really need to know what your corporate church, local church body, believes about baptism and why. The nuts and bolts of baptism. First, this is a Baptist church. When we say that, we don't mean primarily denominationally. Like, there's lots of denominations, Baptist denominations. There's like 50 million self-professed Baptists by denomination in the United States. When I'm saying we're a Baptist church, what I'm pointing at is that we are Baptistic in that we baptize believers. Simply put, that's what it means. 
We baptize believers. It's referred to as believers' baptism by Baptist. You might have heard the term credo-baptism. That just means baptize believers. When a person gets saved, they should get baptized. Sounds like that's what Jesus is saying in the Great Commission. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what we go do. When a person gets saved, we baptize them. For the record, almost every believer holds to that. Almost every believer would say that as an adult, if a person goes from not believing to believing, almost every believing church in the world will say that person should go get baptized. Few, few exceptions, but almost everyone's there. We only baptize believers. And the way that we baptize is that we immerse people in the water. By immerse, I mean they literally get all the way into the water and all the way out. Now, that doesn't mean that if you put a person in the water and the water doesn't cover it up, you all down for the sake. But, but that the mode, we talk about this, it's called the mode of baptism, is that a person would be buried beneath the water and back up. Now, the reason Baptistic churches immerse, put people all the way in the water, has reason. And I'm saying that because there are many of our brothers and sisters in Christ who do different forms, typically maybe pouring uh, some kind of vessel of water over somebody or sprinkling water. Those are different methods that Christians today do. We immerse. One of the first reasons we see biblical reason for this is because the word baptizo in the Bible, that Greek word means immerse. That's what it means. It doesn't mean sprinkle. It means to dunk something into water. Not to mention all of our New Testament examples are immersion. Now, my Presby brothers might debate that, but when you look at the passages, it seems most obvious. They wait to see bodies of water whenever a mode is specified in any bit of specification. It says the person went down into the water and came up out of the water. Jesus' baptism had that. Multiple baptisms in the New Testament. Even Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch, he went down into the water and came up out of the water. It does seem to be the most likely way to view that. Not to mention, submerging somebody in the water best illustrates burial. You don't bury a body by sprinkling dirt on its head. You, 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 you put that body in the earth. Likewise, the washing away of sins. You ever got in the shower and just dunked your head for a second and gotten out? See some military guys here. You guys probably had to, like me before, jump in five-second shower and get out, and you barely got cleansed. That happens, but no one's going to call that a genuine washing but the washing away of sins, which is one of the symbols, is best illustrated by a full-blown, whole body, dipped, dunked, bathed, brought back out. We think, this is why, while we hold this loosely, we love our brothers and sisters who might disagree on this point, we think that this is the most biblical way to do baptism. Get all the way in the water and all the way out of the water. We also believe that baptism is a one-time event. In other words, we don't believe in rebaptism. Now, for the record, again, the great overwhelming majority of churches, regardless of mode, regardless of age of baptism, agree you should not rebaptize anyone. The question is on what does the first baptism constitute for some people? But here's what this means for Baptists. If a person were to say, man, I did get baptized, I, I think I was a genuine believer when I was 19, but man, since then, just so much has changed in my life. I, I strayed from God and then came back. Um, but as a rededication, I want to get baptized again. We'd go, no. No. 
Now, if the person were to say, I don't think I was genuinely saved, we might go, well, then you probably hadn't been baptized. You just got splashed. You got dunked, right? doesn't qualify for baptism if it wasn't like as a believer in faith getting into the waters of baptism out. So we wouldn't re-baptize someone. And I've had this question come up before at this church. Just so you know, we don't do it as a rededication. It's not just every time you want to feel spiritually rejuvenated, you get in the water again. I think it's the wrong way to view baptism. And no one in the Bible ever rebaptized. I don't think that's even possible to do. So no, we don't, we don't do it that way. We'd only baptize a person we don't believe has been genuinely baptized before. Lastly, and I said this already, but we articulate it, we only baptize believers, those who have made a credible profession of faith. And when I say credible profession of faith, it doesn't mean that a bunch of pastors sit there like, like, like on a witch hunt. Hmm, they said something that didn't sound entirely theologically accurate. But a credible profession of faith is not a person like, ah, I like this Jesus stuff. Uh, yeah, put me in the water. What do you think that means? I don't know, but let's just do it. Well, hold on. Do you really believe in the gospel? Have you, have you been saved? Have, have you repented of your sins and turned to Jesus? Do you want him more than all those other things? We want to know. We can say confidently, I think that person's, as much as we can guess, is a genuine believer in Christ. That's who we would baptize. Now, for the record, this, what I just said, we only baptize believers. That's what baptistic is. Credo-baptist. Only baptize believers. This necessarily means that we don't baptize infants. And the reason that I bring that up is because there's many of our beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, those we genuinely are eager to have regular life with, who do baptize little children and infants. And so I want to I kind of spend maybe our remaining time trying to answer this question for you. I want you to know why at this church we do not baptize infants. And for the record, we are very hesitant to baptize little children. In fact, historically, most Baptist churches, in the early history of Baptist churches, properly, post-Reformation Baptist churches, they wouldn't baptize someone until they were in their early 20s. They'd wanted that person to, to go, go like live life, go, go like actually, you know, come back like, I want this! Not just, ah, oh, my parents are nagging me, but like, I, I'm, I want this for myself. So a lot of people did that. We're, we're quicker to baptize than that here. But that is where we look back to roots. We love our pedo-baptist brothers. Pedo-baptist, infant, child, pedo, pedo, children, infant, pedo-baptist, children, baptist. We love our pedo-baptist brothers. Presbyterians, Lutherans, Reformed churches, uh, Methodist churches, throughout Protestant history, many of those baptize infants. And the reasons that these brothers and sisters will do this is because they look to at least three very specific things. History and tradition. They'll say the history and tradition of the church. My goodness, the church has always been doing this. It would be really weird for all of a sudden us to switch gears and not to. That's the first argument. The second is that getting baptized is a sign of being part of the covenant community of God. Just like circumcision was in the Old Testament. They circumcised babies. Why not baptize babies? Okay, that's the second argument. And the last one, regarding the New Testament texts, they might see at least an implication to infants or very little children being baptized whenever a household is baptized in the New Testament. And there's several times we see that, that a household is baptized. And the assumption is, well, clearly there had to have been babies. That's the assumption. Okay. So these are where our brothers and sisters see these things. I want to quickly answer these for your sake. 
First, we believe the historical argument is an illegitimate argument from a Baptistic standpoint. And I have said this to my Presbyterian brothers in rooms with them over coffee, over lunch. We are very open about where we are with this. I do not think this is a legitimate argument. And Baptists don't think that. I want to quote uh, uh, Jonathan Lehman, paraphrased Bruce Ware, both Baptist brothers who were writing about this topic. And this is what they said. A growing number of scholars suggest that most churches practiced believers' baptism in the first four to six centuries of the church's existence. And when infant baptism was practiced... It was treated as necessary for the remission of sins. A, hardly a theology most Protestant pedobaptists would welcome. So in other words, the very practice to which many pedobaptists today appeal was so corrupted by heresy that it cannot be said to be baptism at all. This is what we would say as Baptists to our Presby brothers. Additionally, some of the earliest references that we have to infant baptism are written by believers refuting infant baptism. Simply put, the modern orthodox pedobaptist view only dates back to as far as the 1500s. If you want to find the pedobaptist view that orthodox brothers and sisters find today, you're not going to get much farther than the 1500s. Second argument is a circumcisionary. Well, isn't it supposed to be like the the boys in the Old Testament were circumcised. and In the New Testament, we now baptize boys and girls. Isn't that kind of the same thing? You do something on someone else's behalf, even though they're not conscious of it yet, in order to be considered part of the covenant community? No, I don't think so. First of all, circumcision was a permanent outward sign. A person could literally tell if you've been circumcised by obvious ways. It was a sign of national identity as much as it was anything spiritual which was critical for the preservation of the people of God so that the Messiah would be identified as one coming from the covenant body of God's people. It was only for males in the Old Testament. It'd be odd to think that there wasn't a correspondence to females in the New Testament because we believe that females have all the great promises of the gospel that any male would. Also, the only explicit connection in the New Testament between baptism and circumcision is regarding spiritual circumcision. Not of the hands, it says specifically. Circumcision without hands. It's talking about circumcision of the heart. Much could be said on this. But simply put, as a Baptist, I view this as a tenable argument at best and certainly unconvincing. But most importantly, the dominant reason that we don't baptize infants is because in the New Testament, faith always precedes baptism. Always precedes baptism. Remember we said before that baptism primarily illustrates death and new life in Christ. So it illustrates the fact that that person is a genuine believer in Jesus. Consider the Great Commission. Who are we to baptize? Go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. We baptize disciples. That's who we baptize. Those who are little Christ, followers of Jesus. For a couple slides we put up earlier, I'll throw back up again. Galatians 3, 27 through 28. For as many of you were baptized into Christ to put on Christ. You pointed this out earlier. I don't believe we have biblical grounds to say that an infant who may or may not grow up to be a believer has put on Christ. 
don't know how that could work. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 13 says, For just as the body is one and as many members, and all the members of the body, through though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. What, what is a person baptized into? One body. And they come from what? From Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Those who have the Holy Spirit poured out upon them. In fact, this is actually even an allusion to what Jesus says in John chapter 7, where he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. We get the Spirit. We drink of the Spirit by belief in Jesus. That's why we baptize people, because they have done that. In other words, I don't think we have biblical grounds to say that an infant has drunk of the one spirit. And there are also there, there are no clear occurrences of infant baptism in the New Testament, and certainly no commands to it. Even the household baptisms, let me show you maybe the most the pivotal one that most of my pedo-baptist brothers will point to. Acts 16, 32-34. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, the jailer, and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the, hot, the night and washed their wounds. So, that, so the jailer washes the wounds of the, the disciples. And he was baptized at once. The jailer himself is baptized at once, he and all his family. So time out. This is where our pedobaptist brothers and sisters see a at least possibility. All his family. That has to mean babies. Now, not only would we say, well, that's a, that's a stretch. I think that there are uh, lots of households that don't have babies. That would be an argument from silence. But more to the point, the next verse says, Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Household here is defined by those who can rejoice in someone's new faith. I have a little five-month-old baby. She's much older than the age that most pedobaptists will baptize their babies. She cannot rejoice in my faith. I think household is defined in this way. Our hope and desire at our church, one of them for us, is we always want to be really clear with you. We want to help you to see. We don't just have arbitrary beliefs. Like, ah, it just seems like it makes sense to us. We want you to know we really think that we have scriptural rooting and grounding in these things. This is why we do this. And we want for you to have that. We want you to experience the joy of when you do what is honoring to God, what you see in scripture. You can go, I'm doing what you told me, Lord. We want that for you. And that's why as a church, we want to be clear about even some of these details. We want you to know this. And we want to convince you. We want you to enter into this mutual joy with us and say, yeah, it's right there. Amen. So here's our closing application points. If you're a believer and not baptized, you need to get baptized. I said before, it's not essential in that it's an essential prerequisite for salvation. But it is commanded. It is not optional. There's lots of commands in the New Testament. Okay, Commands like stop sinning. Certainly that's not an expectation that unless you do that, you can't get into heaven. But baptism is not only commanded, but it's expected of all believers. There is, the New Testament knows nothing of an unbaptized believer. 
This is critical to us. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to be baptized and to do this. When the Bible commands something, we obey. That's what it comes down to. We take joy in doing what the Bible says. Jesus did it. That would have been enough of a reason for me. I want to be like Jesus. That's why I wear sandals in the summer. That's not really why. But he did something significant. And we, we want to model that. But more than that, there's a command to do it. To not get baptized is quite simply disobedience. We, we, we want to, oh Lord, help us. Help us understand, see it clearly that we would embrace what you have commanded for us to do. I'm reading a really wonderful book on church uh, organization and polity and stuff like this, uh, Sojourners and Strangers. Almost pounded through it within a, in a week. Just love this book. Uh, one line that was said here by the author, Greg Allison, about baptism is this. Though not necessary for salvation, baptism is necessary as an act of obedience to the Lord who has commanded it. Follow that? Someone were to say, is baptism necessary? Yes, not for salvation. But yes, all believers should, must get baptized. Absolutely. Brother, sister, if, you, if you're a believer in Christ and you're thinking like, man, I, I know for certain that when I was baptized at 13, I was a God hater. I, I was not a Christian. And you have it in your heart and go, man, I'm, I'm convicted I was never baptized. We want to help you. We want you to get in the waters of baptism. If you're right now from a, from a church that came from a pedo-baptist background, you were baptized as an infant, and you're like, I think that's been okay. But in your heart right now, you're, you've become convicted. I, I don't think that was baptism. I think it was a bath in a church. Then we'll say, then get baptized. We would celebrate that with you. And if you've never been in the water in any sense like this before, and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we want you to get in the waters of baptism. We ache for you to have the joy of doing this. We want to celebrate with you as you do that. Final disclaimer. There is room at our church, Mission Church, for those who disagree with some of these points. We're going to try to convince you we're going to try to show you. We're going to, we're going to show, me, show me where you see this. We're going to try to do that because we love you, and that's how we roll here. But there is room for those who disagree with some of these points here. And I can tell you with confidence, the pastors here are eager to embrace brothers and sisters who disagree with us here. We've extended olive branches that, that are, almost make me uncomfortable <laughs> to extend in the, I, I love my brothers and sisters in the faith who don't hold to all the things I say here. And we want you to be members with us, committed body of believers together with those who even have variants on this view. You will be welcome here in that. I think it's good for us to have Christian friends who don't agree with us on all things. It's good for our heart. But we do believe that a right practice of baptism is an essential part of a Christian church. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we get to talk about and read verses about, I get to preach about, and we get to celebrate what baptism is. Oh, Lord, we love all of your law, all of your commands, all the things that you have told us to do. Let us be like David in the Old Testament who would meditate on your law your word, your teaching day and night, and that we would love it, that we would seek to align our lives to it. Father, I know that there is probably no way 
that every believer in history will somehow unite in our views on this before Jesus returns. And I pray that you would teach us how to give charity and generosity to one another while at the same time aching to find in your word what you want for us to do. Lord, we want to be a church that honors you, that lifts you up, that says, this is our master. His name is Jesus. He sets the rules. He tells us what to do, and he pours his love and grace all over us. I pray that we can demonstrate that as a church. We can model it well. And Lord, I pray that many, many, many people will be baptized at the Mission Church, that we will be able to celebrate that together and display to this local body testimonies of people who have been saved by grace through faith, who want to model, demonstrate, display their new life in you by getting into the waters of baptism. Lord, help us to think rightly about that. Help us to honor you in it and help us to be charitable with one another. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.